Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in our plush recording suite with my Rocks Back Pages co-founders, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Martin Collier. Hi, Barney. We're here to talk about all that's new in the world's largest archive of music journalism. And joining us on this Thursday morning is the one and only Robin Hitchcock. Welcome, sir. Hello, Barney. <laughs> <laughs> really, we should have had you on the show in about five weeks because you once wrote a, a song called August in Hammersmith. I think we missed a trick there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, we we're coming that? up on it again. August in Hammersmith You don't know who you're with But we're here, we're here we are in late June and we're yeah. thrilled to have you any time of the year. Um, thank you. Maybe let's start with the fact that you've recently moved back to London from Nashville. How does it feel to be home? Ah, uh, well, I'm back here, I guess. Where are we, London? Yeah. I mean, it. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of... Boy, you'd think it would be a simple question to answer. <laughs> I'm beginning to um, regret asking I've spent, that. I've spent so much time in the States because basically... That's where my career's been based for the last 35 years. I feel more at home in Britain because it's where I come from. Mm. But that said, I've adapted to being in the States and I've got an American persona. My voice doesn't change, but you know, I whip out the old elevator and all that stuff. And, <laughs> and I prefer saying things like restroom because it doesn't, it doesn't have the same overtones as toilet, loo or lavatory, which are immediately, you know, put you somewhere on the class ladder. And I like being me over there because people just think I'm British rather than trying to figure out how I fit in. I think that applies to a lot of us because, you know, this is a small and very hierarchical country. Mind you, America's a big and hierarchical country <laughs> and it's becoming uninhabitable. So yeah. I... Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I th Nashville is really great for music. It's a very good place to go and cut albums, as the greater world discovered when Dylan started recording there in the late 60s. Yeah. You know, so I, being a huge Dylan fan, I was thrilled to finally make my way and cut albums in Nashville just like the greats had done. You know, I really <laughs> felt like, okay, I'm actually, I've got a proper job, this is real. So I really like being there professionally. But especially after, like, six months of lockdown, I was just pining for things like a dodgy British pub or, or just to be on a... Like, on the A45 outside Bedford, where I've never... <laughs> I've never been there, but, you know, it's like... But you were suffering twining I was for having, it. I was having... Not for the fjords, fake, but for the... No, fake stalgia. A-road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fake stalgia. You know, like, I, I know Keith Richard drove his Bentley off the... M1 near the A45 in 1977, and so I always thought that would be a place to visit. <laughs> and, but I think that's lockdown. When we came back here, and then we were locked in in, you know, wherever it was, like Hackney, Islington, for six months. So it's just like changing the wallpaper. Yes. Hmm. I, instead of having this street corner on in East Nashville, mm -hmm. we just had a like a wet, damp street corner, but it was. <laughs> You were allowed out, but that was about it. It was even more dismal. I don't know how your <laughs> lockdowns were, but, you know, it's like sort of... Mine was quite nice. I was in, in the country. Were you? In, in Gloucestershire, yeah. Whereabouts? So. 
Dursley, near Stroud. Oh, okay. Did you do mushrooms? Not then, <laughs> no. <laughs> the, the, as listeners to this regular listeners podcast know, I have become a recent adopter of, re, re-adopter of psychedelics. So, Oh, have you got any mescaline? <laughs> not on me. <laughs> I really this really get... is not the point. <laughs> Sorry. <of this. laughs> people, people associate me erroneously with psychedelics. Mm-hmm. I took very little because I was very cautious. I could see what it had done to my heroes you know people like lennon and barrett and, and even dylan and everybody it was a a faustian pact you had like you know a couple of years of high functioning third eye activity and yeah. then you were correspondingly burned out for the same time or maybe forever yeah. so i was yeah. very very cautious right. with psychedelics and you know compared to say someone like julian cope yes. i took virtually none but I did have organic mescaline a couple of times, and I wouldn't say no to a taste if anyone comes up with it. <laughs> I'm sorry we didn't get any in. Oh, you just had to yeah. settle for coffee. Right? <laughs> yeah, so uh, any, anyone, actually, anyone listening to podcasts? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, just, just get in touch with Rock's Back Pages. Yeah. <laughs> Robin Hitchcock, Carol. Yes. <laughs> yeah, W, wherever we are, six. Yeah. Um, Coffee's probably better this time of day. Yeah, in a way, that's quite quite a, a useful cue just to talk about 60s. I, mean, oh, yeah. I was going to ask you, the first question I was going to ask you really was, you know, were you slightly too young to take part in the 60s revolution? I know that a lot of your influences were like key acts of that decade. But how much did you feel like you actually sort of participated in the whole kind of hippie revelry of it? Oh, I had my nose pressed up against the window, but I couldn't quite get in. You know, if I'd been like 18 months older, I might have got into the UFO club. I might have seen Dylan Electric. Right. You know, I was just, it was a That's classic what I was thing. Thinking. I uh, just missed it. So, ter- terrible yeah. question. How old are you now? I'm 70. Right, yeah, yeah, you're, you're so, close to you, So, you, I, you know, I was 15 in 1968, I first sort of, gig I went to was Traffic in Hyde Park. Yeah. Did you go to that one? No, I went to the Soft Machine in 69 in Hyde Ooh. Park. That was my first. We'll talk about that later. But you went yeah. to the Isle of Wight And I was 69. at the Isle of Wight in 69. Wow, yeah. But it, it was like, as soon as I started going to gigs, I could feel that I'd really missed the... I, whatever it was had already bolted. You know, there was just a lot of people with long hair playing <laughs> guitar with things that you punch holes in paper with. And, but you could see the whole revolution was already marketed. You just grew your yeah. hair, got stoned and played music to people who did the same thing. Yeah. Didn't stop me wanting to grow my hair and get stoned and become utterly mediocre, which, of course, I did and then took it's... ages to recover from. <laughs> but I, I did. I, I missed it, Barney. But it, that's probably why I've been so fanatically 1967 because I didn't actually yeah. get to fry my brains and, you know, hang out with Joe Boyd with a, uh, you know, that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny how quickly that gets commodified too because if you look at like punk rock, if you look at pictures of the early days of punk rock, there there aren't those things that you associate. There's no safety pins. There's no black bin light. I mean, actually, you know, there's sweaters and cardigans. It's a kind of funny thing when it suddenly goes into something that everyone kind of adopts really quickly. That's it, what, yeah, Captain so Sensible I guess you said. Come, yeah, he just said, to begin with, the idea was punk, that you just did it yourself. And yeah. then 
they very then quickly began, began to market it. I don't know. What, what, were you around then, Barney? Were you in uh, the, in, not Are we talking hippies 60s? or punk? Hippies. Were you? Um, I, no, I was definitely too you young for young. that. I, mm. I, I really, I would say that my pop life started in 71 with... with Hearing T Rex for the first Mark time. Boland. That 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 was it for me. So and then 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 you kind of work backwards. Yeah, wow. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I, I was eleven in sixty seven. So starting secondary school nineteen sixty eight in Chelsea, Holland Park Comprehensive, and it was Kensington Market. It was oh yeah, all of that sort of stuff. It was the residue. It was the fag end of the hippie sort of period. And then when Sex Pistols played, Martin and I were at art school. Sex Pistols played in 1975. And Johnny Rotten was telling us we were all too old from the stage. And I was thinking he's absolutely right. Turned out he's a day older than me. <laughs> <laughs> ah, wow. Well, he said the right thing at the right time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, that's... He's good at the philosophy. But um, that's interesting, because in a way, Barney, you're like the fir- one of the first generation that would be- worked its way back. Like, for us lot, there wasn't really anything yeah. to work your way back to, except, I suppose, well, sort of rock and roll. There was, there was, yeah, 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 I mean, I suppose... Yeah, yeah. There wasn't... There was no sense of history, mm. I suppose. And then about five years... Early seventies, there mm. was the beginning of "Oh man, rock goes back." You yes. know, yes, yeah. I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. It had long enough to have a past. Yes, um, kind of. I was actually going to going to take you back ten years, Robin, to when you um, joined us for the the sort of short lived Rocks Back Pages album club, which was held in Notting Hill, and you yeah. came along. It was a absolutely fabulous evening, hosted by by Mark Ellen, your friend. And Green Gartside and yourself came on to celebrate with Mark the incredible String Bands album, oh, yeah. Hang Man's Beautiful yeah. Daughter. Yeah. And I, so Mark asked you at one point what, how you came to discover the uh, incredible String Band. And this is what you, what did I say? This is, this is sort of what you said. And it was, it, so you're going to have to listen to yourself now. I don't think everybody liked it, particularly of, of my, my clan. Um, remember my sister laughing hysterically when she heard Twitters the Wind. And, uh, no, I don't think... But, you know, it, but it was a sacrament. I mean, I actually... I quite literally cooked brown rice out in the water meadows, cross-legged, barefoot, in my red trousers and caftan. You know, I cooked brown rice listening to that thing. Like uh, that you know, really yeah, yeah, I think you... Know, <laughs> yeah, we quite literally cooked brown rice. You know, Levitation City. I mean, the point is that you just have to have something you believe in and then it, it acts as a prism for your faith. That's why we're still here. I once saw you sitting up a tree. I love that little remark from Mark at the end. Oh, yeah, we did, because that was the time of album covers being set in trees. I mean, the <laughs> Humble Pie did it, the String Band did it. The idea was if you were going to make records, you probably had to sit in a Just tree. A tree. <laughs> you know, think about it. You, you know, it's the idea... It's, um, and and someone, have to get the fire, someone would have to get the fire brigade to help you out. <laughs> well, we never got that high, as it were, <laughs> high up. But, but it was... You know, I mean, you know, you know it's, it's an idea that you want to market yourself in a way it's a very sound mm. what am i going to be where will i be how am i going to present and i think that's the first thing that my friends and i did but i'm the only one who went on to be a musician right but you know if anyone worth their salt at that point wanted to grow their hair 
get stoned, make albums, play a guitar, and then you know, then in a <laughs> then you went into the fog. Yeah. Yes. So, did you, did yeah. you buy the underground press where you're an international times man or an old oh, man? Jeez, yeah. I, I mean, my surviving stash of newspapers and things, I've got. I'm international times going back to '67. Yeah, yeah. And Oz, I've got the you know the blowing in the mind, the Martin Sharp. Wow, the one Martin Sharp. Have these all come back to London from Nashville with you, or have they always been here in a lockup or something? <laughs> some of them were in a lockup. Some of them went to Nashville with me. Some of them are still in Nashville. Some of them were about to fly to Nashville with our two cats about six weeks ago when I suddenly got a message that. I had to stay here for a variety of reasons, and suddenly I'm not moving back to Nashville, which I was six weeks ago. Uh, so it's all all our all our goods and chattels are sort of frozen somewhere <laughs> in a warehouse outside Heathrow, including not my old international times. No, no, the cat. <laughs> no, no. I'm glad you asked that. By yeah, it's I thought it was awful. You're going to say the cats no, are, have no, been in yeah. transit for the last no, six weeks. The cats are in a safe house near the London fields with two trusted <laughs> operatives. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, it, it, it was it was quite a. Quite a lot of stuff happened, and um, so I'm actually still here. So we were going to do a podcast, a um, phoner, but I'm actually here in person. Exactly. Yeah. So when when we first asked you, you would you were said, "Well, I will be in Nashville." That's what I thought. Yeah. You'd be talking about restrooms. I'd be talking about restrooms. I'd have said, "Hey, Barney, I'm in the restroom. I just need to use the restroom. How's it going? Where's the elevator to the restroom? Yeah. Got any Rick Dankos? <laughs> um, just to just to be clear, the incredible string band. So, when you were cooking brown rice, what age would you have been cooking it? When did that album came out in Hangman's came out sixty eight. Came out in April sixty eight. But so, when you were cooking brown rice, was were you was that when the album had just come out? Yeah, or was I was that a bit later. I yeah. was old enough to have a, a brown rice license. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And they I was allowed to carry a saucepan by myself into the water meadows. <laughs> but I I don't know I just I don't know why I did it, but I certainly did it and I ate okay. it with my eyes shut, listening to Three is a Green Crown, which is one of the longer tracks. You can just about boil the rice and eat it. <laughs> no, it was it was it was like I said in that thing, it's a it's a sacrament. got a portable record player yeah and i would take my sacred records which would you know the first three string band albums highway 61 blonde on blonde yeah maybe a roy harper and i'd just go up the hill and cross my legs and listen to this stuff or i'd do it with my friends yes mm-hmm. we yeah. hadn't run across we hadn't even managed to get hold of any dope at that point and this was completely so your sober. list was slightly Oh, there were lots of things I was still living for. There were lots of ways of damaging myself I couldn't wait to do. <laughs> but I was actually still pretty virginal in many senses. And my mind was probably at its most acute, as you are, when, you know, you're just going over that border. You're physically an adult, but all your experiences have been as a child. Mm. And you're very, in a way, very gullible, but you're also very sharp. In some ways, your bullshit detector is is 
you know that's why yeah. teenagers are such a pain to deal with because they're so smart <laughs> they haven't they haven't compromised themselves the way we yeah. have and gone oh yeah well yeah uh, well yeah well yeah can <laughs> <laughs> you get back to me on that roy thank you <laughs> i'm fond of this patch of skin on your mother's shoulder <laughs> <laughs> you know and you, you're just acute you yeah, i'm sorry yeah, the, yeah. the coffee's yeah. kicking in here. The coffee's <laughs> kicking. Well, I, this is not the masculine you know and that's not the masculine but Another reason why I've sort of clung so strongly to my 1967, 68 persona, persona or, or, or how I felt about things, you know, and I still like the coloured shirts and I still listen to Were you the playing records. guitar at this point? I had a guitar, then I learned to tune it, but I, not until I got the Bob Dylan songbook sometime <laughs> in the autumn of 1968 did I know how the chords worked. Right. But, boy, Mr Tambourine Man, three chords, I was away. Yeah, yes. yeah. And, you know, Visions of Johanna, three chords, and I've been working on that, interpreting that song for 56 years. And, yeah. You know, I still play it in A, sometimes drop it to G. Mm-hmm. My wife Emma's done a brilliant version of it. She's uh, Emma Swift. She has a record called Blonde on the Tracks. Yes which she put out on our tiny ghost label. We finished it in lockdown and... um we neither of us knew how to overdub, so we we got a five track <laughs> machine because I just married another sort of technophobe or whatever you know. She, no, <laughs> she's not a technophobe, but she's as neither of us is any good at this yeah, stuff. Yeah. So we got it, and we we just had to keep doing. We did thirty takes of "I Contain Multitudes" because we couldn't find a way of dropping in. So it was, it was really good by the time it was. It was yeah. And we sent it off to Pat Sansone from Wilco, who lives up the road, and he overdubbed it, and it sounds right. professional. But the OG track is M and me doing that. <laughs> but she she hasn't cut "Visions of Johanna," but she does a dynamite version of okay. it, and. Um, Sorry, yeah, Dylan, yeah, no, boy, you know, no, no. Big Alpha and Omega, you know. I did just want to mention that the audio of that album club night is on Rockstar Pages, and it is really worth listening to. But anything else, you and Green actually sung about oh, three or four tracks from Hangman's. Yeah. Oh, God. So that, that's on there. Oh, you, yeah, you're I'd probably going to come, come after us for sort of... You know, royalties, royalties <laughs> oh, um, I could send Robin Williamson after you. But I, don't <laughs> think, I don't think I have any, but I don't know yeah, what the I should have kept quiet about that. Really. It's all right. Is he still a Scientologist? No, no, they they got rid of it ages ago. Th- that story about Joe Boy taking to New York and then find, finally they'd gone missing, and when he found them again, they'd all converted to Scientology. Yeah, those well, are the grabbed days. by something. So they got <laughs> by Not stuff. the yes. children of God who yeah. have been. No, yeah, on Oxford Jeremy, Street in the no. early seventies. No, it was it was a, some some Scientologists. Yeah. Joe had a date, and so he followed his libido out of the cafe, and he <laughs> left the string band. And some guy that they'd known that Joe had known rocked up, and he was much more together than he had been. And Joe went, "Well, what's happened to you?" And he said, "You know, Scientology man." Anyway, he got hold of Mike and. Rose and Robin and Licorice, because they were the, the four of them at that time. Yeah, yeah. And by the time Joe got back, they'd been converted, <laughs> <laughs> which got them off drugs, you know. Oh, I mean, what? it meant their trajectory, instead of going... I mean, I can't imagine them on smack, but, you know, they they were pot and acid people, yeah. and then they just went into whatever Scientology does. They yeah. did play Woodstock, didn't they? Yes. I'd, 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 I'd suggest they stick with the pot and acid and steer clear of the Scientology, but... <laughs> <laughs> They'd have probably agreed with you by the end. Yeah. But, but, yeah, no, I'm, 
I'm in touch with them both. Oh, but, yeah. Good. Should we move on to the soft boys? I mean, one of the interesting things oh, yeah. about like early interviews with you guys is you already you're talking about like folk music even then you're talking about Fairport Convention the Albion Band and stuff like that oh yeah um and that's pretty sort of unusual for what sort of 77 78 and I suppose my question would be you know how how sort of out of place did you feel how out of sync did you feel with what was happening in music in terms of you know the early like fumblings of punk rock and so forth to begin with, I didn't feel that out of step because what I really liked was the fact that it was snappy. So, you know, punk punk groups were called The. They got back to... They weren't yeah, yeah, called yeah. Scudge and, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> Free Doom and, you know, all that kind of stuff. They were called The Damned, The Clash, The Sex yeah, yeah, Pistols. Yeah. So, you know, I liked that. I liked the fact that the songs were snappy. Yes. And the first thing I saw was the vibrators who weren't genuine punk, but they were still, you know, yeah. apparently, mm-hmm. they, but they were still playing these fast... Songs and zipping around the stage at Dingwalls with skinny trousers, you know. Yeah. And and I think we saw the damned, and um, I like that element. But as soon as punk developed an orthodoxy, and unfortunately the press had a big part of that. The orthodoxy was nothing happened before 1976 except Iggy and the Stooges, mm-hmm. the MC5, and the Velvet, and the Velvet Underground, Underground. Yeah. and and the only re- I, I like I was. I was into the Velvet Underground, but not Iggy and the MC5. It was a bit too grungy for mm-hmm. me. And then it all got rather Stalinist. And, you know, I know there was this... <laughs> a lot of people, because there were a lot of people of my age, people like Andy Partridge and Glenn Tilbrook and Chris Difford and Elvis Costello, who were all basically second-generation Beatle kids. Yeah, yeah. They managed to kind of slip past the new wave police better than we did. We didn't cut our hair and we had harmonies and we we were a bit less savvy. Perhaps if we hadn't been in Cambridge, you know, we'd have thought, oh, better not. I remember playing in Manchester and someone said, well, it's all right, but they haven't had a harmony up here in six months. <laughs> it's like, oops, sorry, mate. <laughs> so, um, you know, we did, we just did the wrong stuff at the right time. Again, as Captain Sensible, bless him, said. And then a few years later, it turned out that the punks had all been hippies because, of course, they couldn't have been punks before they were punks. Well, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, Sensible and Co were, I mean, I don't think Sensible was ever a pothead, but no. he loved his... I mean, Psych, you know. Johnny Rotten's interview on Capital Radio, where he started playing Van de Graaff Generator tunes and all that sort of stuff, was, well, was, was, a, was a huge Neil Young, no less. Yeah, yeah. When, when, was, when was that? That was in '77. The response was appalled. You know, the, 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 the punk. <laughs> how could scene. you, John? Well, absolutely horrible. McLaren was horrified. He said, "How can you be playing these records? Everything we're against." Message. Was it, it really was not a message. Oh. It was absolutely fantastic, yeah, yeah. and it was a direct point towards what he did with public image yeah. later. You yeah. know, but you're absolutely right. I mean, and ours, as I said, one day younger than Johnny Rotten, precisely that generation, and you know, we had had a six-year hinterland listening to all this other stuff, whether it's 
Pink Floyd, The Grateful Dead, or whatever, you know. Uh, the thing is that the soft boys were snappy, though. That's the point. We I mean, were like, snappy. listen to I Want to Destroy You. I mean, the very title sounds like, like, a, a, like a punk song. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah, like a Stooges no, song. Yeah, the Americans who didn't, you know, had a different perspective thought we actually were punks. Yeah. Yes. And it, it's now a sort of posthumous punk yeah. hit. I love the way we've been edited Ed- in it. <laughs> we're <laughs> next to Sham 69 on one of those compilations. <laughs> if the we, Sham oh, Army had turned up at one of our kids. <laughs> we were actually listening to a couple of tracks this morning, and actually, what it reminded me of people like Wire. It was actually Quite almost almost, almost post punk in a way. Punk, yeah. yeah. No, well, I think well, we opened for Wire punk. once. Yeah. Right, the Wire, XTC, Soft Boys, so, Television. You know, we fitted so, into that bit. Fit a touch of Gang of Four, and that, who's the, the great, li- great yeah. guitar player? Gang of Four, Andy Gill. Yes. Andy Gill. Um, I mean, yeah. there's a touch of that. So yeah. it is I mean, like Old Pervert, for example. It's a, oh one, one of your many <laughs> fabulous titles, Just Old Pervert. <laughs> or is it Ugly Pervert? No, Old Pervert. Old that's pervert that's Kimberly's on... incredible guitar on that. Yes. Yeah, it's great. It's really exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he. I mean, we were a great guitar band. You were a great guitar And we were a reasonable harmony band, but... But um, it's great that stuff has actually lasted, and we are. Uh, I can announce because it's going to take bloody ages for it. To be, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I should even go into this, but <laughs> it's we, too late now. We, uh, well, uh, yes, there's actually this underwater moonlight has been lovingly remastered from an original quarter-inch master tape dated February 1981, around the time the Soft Boys dissolved, which my old manager and dear friend Richard Bishop sent to me, and Emma and I were sitting in the mastering suite in Nashville a few months ago, and there it is sounding absolutely fantastic. We get to Old Pervert, and it's going... And it's not going... And I think, oh, well, why isn't it going... And why aren't I saying skin it back? Because it's a different tape. Because oh, it's wow. a different tape because... Bless him, our now deceased bass player, Matthew Seligman, mm. preferred that and he just stuck he it just on stuck the master it. without telling us. Oh, then he went and died. And um, yeah, so we're trying to track down this last <laughs> yeah. thing because we're still trying to make a ruddy digital free analog, you know, ye old time yeah, 180 yeah. guzm yes. thing. Yeah, yeah. And when we finally succeeded in doing that, then it'll <laughs> come out. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay great. Great. It's still alive. So the soft boys is, you know, so, once so more in his, his personal effects, the late Seligman's personal effects will be a, a small a seven inch reel to reel of the then one he song. Cut out. I wish. I actually, I had 20, you know, you ask him where my old underground magazines were. I had 27 boxes in storage for about 30 years. Just before we left our rented house, I got them all delivered. So I, but I only found 26 that one of them was missing. And that was the one that had the other quarter inch masters of underwater uh. moonlight. So I found two, two slightly moldy reels of quarter inch four track now this is riveting isn't it folks you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I've sent them off to Nashville to have the mould scraped away from them and to be yeah, yeah. baked and it's just possible uh, that that's the one but you don't you know, know right? until I don't that's know. done I don't yeah. know yeah. it's just fingers crossed fingers yeah. crossed how long is a remastered piece of string <laughs>
I'm just going to read from the first of the Soft Boys pieces uh, that we're going to feature on the homepage. This is a live review of you guys at the Nashville, um, March 78. I guess I'm guessing you played February 1978. Reggae, bastard blues, straightforward rock, and even some folk stuff a la middle period Fairport Convention, all tied together by the strengths of character shown not only by leader Robin Hitchcock, but by the rest of the band, Kimberly Rue, Andy Metcalf, Morris Windsor, and occasional harp player Jim Melton. The Soft Boys managed to manage to tap so many rock influences and mould them into a style all their own, and the net result was little short of astounding. Astounding? Maybe that should read perplexing. They defied all normal descriptions. If you want categories, then, as somebody in the audience was heard to mutter, you might even call them psychedelic. Ugly Nora, I Want to See Your Jellies Roll, song title, revealed Robin as a wordplay man in Beefheartian class, while his guitar dueling with the fresh-faced Mr. Rue was greatly reminiscent of the Jeff Sinclair Raikuda 66 <laughs> Magic Band scaffolders. Ooh. Admittedly, Hitchcock's delivery and attitude was a mite too intellectual <laughs> at times, but... That's Cambridge for you. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Too intellectual anyway, for the Nashville room. It's a period with Chaz DeWally. Oh, Chaz DeWally, who'd of course Chaz. been at Cambridge. Oh. Takes one to know. Takes one to know. I think, yeah, that was pretty much it. I think the people we most upset as writers were the people who were most like us. Right. Yeah. That's always the way. self-loathing, man. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yes. Uh, but, yes. uh, yeah, I mean, it, we, <laughs> we had a lot of profile for a bit, but we really hadn't. We were very eclectic, too eclectic, mm-hmm. I think. To, mm-hmm. I was too heedless of marketing, and it wasn't until we became more limited. Andy Metcalf, who was very good at trying out anything, but you know, wouldn't tether himself to one thing, went. And Matthew, who was a much more straight-ahead player, came in. And then I just also wrote some much more straight-ahead songs, and so we did Underwater Moonlight. But by that time, the, the eye of the business had moved on, right. and we were we were just a sort of marginal little mm-hmm. freak show for proto-psychedelics, which is, mm. you know, we weren't... No-one was going to try and make us the, the next clash or something. Sure. But we did yes. make it... We made it to America. Yeah. Well, um, which is know. where, you know, America really embraced you and has always embraced you in a way that, that hasn't happened here. And when you talk about harmonies, I was listening to I Want to Destroy You Again, the harmonies on the chorus of that are sort of very proto-REM. To, to me, after all these years, and it kind of makes sense oh, that, yeah. they, that they embraced the I think we voice. just got there first. Oh, definitely um, got there first. But, yeah, that was all done on... God, that was done on four-track, quarter-inch. I mean, uh, fantastic job Pat Collier did of bouncing all that stuff down. We just didn't kind of renounce things because they were unfashionable. Exactly. And so... You know, and I don't think I don't think anyone in the Soft Boys was like into the MC5 or anything. You know, the Velvet Let's Underground. Let alone Led Zeppelin. And let's let's alone interview, Led there's Zeppelin. one interview where you say, "I can unreservedly say I've never been influenced by Led Zeppelin." <laughs> and we haven't mentioned Sid Barrett, who's obviously you know uh, a key influence on your, I would say, your vocal style. I oh, think. Sid Barrett. Yes. I mean, I I talk, think talk about a little bit about Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Oh wow! I mean that. Cambridge, of course. Cambridge, yeah. He, I mean, Sid Barrett was. <clears throat> so I just have to clear my throat to even think of it. Really. <laughs> you know, he, I, I 
think he was absolutely brilliant. I think as a guitarist, as a lyricist, as a melody writer, he had some unerring, childlike, direct genius that somebody like Roger Waters would never have. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think we can um, pretty much agree on that. And I think somebody like Robin Hitchcock doesn't have either, and I don't think David Bowie had it, but but we were all very... We, me and Rog and Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Here, boys. Uh, let's have a whisper bar. No more for you, Rog, that's it. You're not there. <laughs> Dave, you're looking skinny. Go on, you have, you have me crumbs. Go on. <laughs> but it, it, I think it, there's a song kind of, like, building here. Yeah. <laughs> Roger, Dave me and, and Roger and Dave. Dave. You yeah. can have that title. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but I, I, we were all people who were influenced by Sid Barrett's approach. And he was, he'd listen, he obviously listened to the Beatles and he'd listened to Dylan and he'd listened to Bo Diddley and whatever. But what he came, he came out perfectly formed, you know, in a way that very few people did. Even Bob Dylan sort of came out with a load of covers and was fairly derivative when he started. And the Beatles were all covers. And mm-hmm. Bowie's early stuff wasn't that great, you know. And mm. uh, and But Sid Barrett, just there it was, Arnold yeah, yeah, Lane, yeah. oh, my God. Yeah. You know, and then it, within six months it was gone. Mm. Where did it yeah. go? Nobody I'm just knows. Curious, we, oh, we were talking to Richard Morton Jack about Nick Drake in the last podcast. And there's a curious parallel. These are people who came fully formed with their stuff and there wasn't a lot of it to be had. Yeah. It was a a short, creative life, effectively. I think they were probably both quite fragile in different ways. I I suspect Barrett was more of a hard nut. He did actually live quite a long time. He just sort of... That's true. I think he just... I think I think of it as like Sid was a sort of flower that grew on the cactus that was Roger Barrett, and it <laughs> flowered for about two years, and then it was gone. Yeah, yeah. And he became Roger again, and Roger didn't write songs. Roger mm. was an art student, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Did I, you ever see Sid on the I streets of Cambridge? No, I just wondered. I was looking for him the whole yes, time. Yes, sure. You know, I mean, I, I, pretty much by the mid seventies, late seventies, I kind of. Barrett was a sub-personality, possibly more. I mean, I think I was probably more Sid Barrett than I was a Robin Hitchcock. <laughs> I've always been happy, in some ways happy. I like channeling other people. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, if I do a John Lennon song, I try and sing it like Lennon, just as if someone was playing an orchestral piece, they'd try and play it in a certain style, that whatever sure. it said. You know, the, I, I kind of, I think that's part of the song. But I definitely had a long period being, being you know Sid Hitchcock, and I, I I sort of I don't think I am so much now. But I don't know, it's all in there. It's in it's in the DNA. So yeah. whenever I when I write songs now, I'll go, oh blimey, that's a Sid line. You know, it's yeah. it's like the thing, John Carpenter. You know that, that where the being absorbs all these yeah creature living creatures, and it becomes this sort of grotesque hybrid of sort of dogs and spacemen and icicles and you know it staggers out you know or it's in one of the Quatermass um stories as well that the thing that the thing inside that what had been a spaceship winds up in Westminster Cathedral it's just absorbed all these cats and dogs and tendrils and yeah, and that's Robin not even on masculine. No, <laughs> I, am, I am the great absorber. You know, every I think you know you are your nutrients to some extent. 
Um, but Barrett was definitely one of them, and I, I still, I don't listen to it much because I know it. I'm very familiar it's, with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I love it, and I love the solo albums, which a lot of people sort of think, well, this isn't as good as Piper, but there's something about the kind of decrepit openness of them. Mm. He's thinking directly onto the tape. Mm -hmm. It's like walking around in somebody's mind. You can feel the rhythm of somebody walking. Mm -hmm. It is obvious, may I say, oh, baby, that it is found on another plane. Yes, I can creep into cupboards, sleep in the hall. It is obvious, may I say, oh, baby, that it is found on another plane. Yes, I can creep into cupboards, sleep in the hall. My God, he's just walking over the flat plains of Cambridge thinking, thinking this stuff, this and somehow he's managed to write it down. Right. There's no sort of, well, I'm writing a song now, so right. I'd better put this in songese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, what, a, what an incredible gift. You yeah. know. Yes, yes, Ectochrome yes. plane, I see the flies. Of course. You know, it's just like, <laughs> right, right. fucking hell, I wish I'd said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talking of channeling people, you recorded a, a, a Dylan covers album. Oh yeah! In in 2002, Robin sings. It prompted us to dig out an interview with a very very sort of forgotten figure, David Blue, who was a oh, pal yeah. of Dylan's in yeah. Greenwich Village. You know, right at the beginning. I mean, when Dylan first arrived there, he hooked up with people like David Blue, and. There's a label called Hanky Panky, which has just reissued the very first David Blue album, which is 1966, on Electra, oh. Oh. and also put out these recordings that he made as... There's this act called The American Patrol. Yep. And he says in this, in this audio interview that... It was going to come out, and then he heard Rubber Soul, and he just said, "Forget it." I just uh, so they found said, they found the recordings. They found some some recordings of the American Patrol. I've not heard them yet because yeah. I don't know yeah. when we're going to be able to hear them. But so, Mark, you've listened to the audio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just yeah. thought in the context of Dylan, well, absolutely, and the village and all that. Um, we were I mean, just talking about he precisely. I mean, this is John Tober interviewing him in 1973 when he was still had a viable career. His his recording career went down the tubes fairly rapidly after and he died in 83 heart attack running in washington square park i know so he actually died where he sort of started in a way, in a way you know Washington. i mean ironic not not many sort of rock legends die of running jogging, jogging. no one could say it's kind of fair enough uh, anyway so he he talks about going to the village i mean he apparently went to new york in 1959 but really it's kind of the early 60s uh, he talks about being encouraged by by Dylan. Shall we listen to the first clip? Mm-hmm. It's just a period of the time, you know. Dylan just happened to be the say maybe the symbol of the time or the spearhead or whatever he was. I mean, my relationship with him in terms of writing, I said at one point he encouraged me as a songwriter. He's the the only person with any weight, you know. Yeah. Because we were friends, right? At one point, said that's a great song you wrote. Why don't you, you know, why don't you? Here's a typewriter. Take these pills. Let's go up to the woods, you know. Uh, in his own way, which made me much more interested in singing and something I was doing. And because when I got there, like Dylan was already there. I'd been there about five months. It was playing. 
Mm-hmm. People knew who he was. He had he had made a record for Columbia. Right. It came out, you know, and uh, it was out like my first say summer or winter in, in, on that scene, you know, and and nothing was happening particularly except they was, you know, yeah, right, well thought of around the area, but no one ha- had an inkling. You know, it was a very folky scene and very yeah, uh, suddenly. Let's go to the woods, find a tree and climb it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fascinating listening to someone who really was there. Yeah, yeah. Talking quite vividly about what what the the scene was like. And one of the few people who actually with a good word to say about Bob at that time. Right. And I think I seem to remember David Blue being a lot of people in the village at the time tipped him to be the one who the would have Dylan. the big career. Yeah. <laughs> the new old Dylan. I don't know. I think he Dylan. um yeah. I can't. I've, um, I know I've heard the record, but I can't. It, it, It'd be it, interesting it, to listen again. It's a curiosity. I mean, you know, he, he talks about. He changed his name from Cohen to Blue. So it's David Cohen. He signed to Electra. Electra had a were a, basically a folk sort of label, but with the Doors and Love on. Yeah, and he had three tracks on this very, very interestingly titled album that you guys may have heard called Singer Songwriter Project. 1965 comes wow. out on Electra. Wow. And that's like, almost like, yes, I think so. And it's like the first, I don't know if it's the very first use of the term singer-songwriter or with, as a result of that album, it became, you know, very a very, you know, well, well-recognised well term. But Who else is on that? Danny Cowell. <laughs> yes, I can't <laughs> Eric remember. Also. Eric I Anderson? Maybe Eric Anderson. The three tracks that he are on this Lost the 1967 Electra Recordings right. album that they're putting out. Okay, so right. yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so his relationship with Electra just lasts for that one album. He signs to Reprise, talks about the Company Freaks, which is kind of you know, mentions Andy Wickham, exactly. Like you know, uh, all of that does the uh, 23 Days in September album. Reverts to S. David Kerm records an album in Nashville called Me that John Turbin's sort of slightly dismissive of. Well, you know, why did you need to go to Nashville to make a record? And why, you know, it only took you a week to do it. And he said, well, that's the whole point of Nashville. Exactly. And then, well, we'll listen to another clip in a second. I mean, he, he talks about then Signed to Asylum. It's about Elliot Roberts, it's about David Geffen, all of that sort of stuff and recording stories. Mm. Let's listen to this clip. Mm. You got together with Geffen and Roberts anyway, and mm-hmm. at this point, Asylum was just about to start, mm-hmm. and that seemed like a good a good place for you to be. Only place. Mm. For me, I was Elliot was my manager, and partly with David, and uh, I wanted a record contract, and I was out looking for one myself, and Elliot came up with one, and uh, I was going to talk to some other people, and I remember when Elliot came and said, "Oh, I just." You know, I've got your contract with X company for this amount. And I said, great, because that's what I wanted. Terrific. I particularly like that company. And uh, that night he said, oh, well, you know, you can go on asylum. And I, a lesser deal in terms of money. Money didn't matter, you know. Right. It had nothing to do with money. It only had to do with my relationships with Ellie and David as people, you know, and their concept of what record company they were going to make. What, 
what it is. And that's why I, I, I went with him because I believe in it. Yeah, because you were about the first, the, you were first, first album to come out. Were you in Judy? I was in the Judy Sill, uh, first four. Judy Jackson, Joni, and Judy Sill. It wasn't easy when I think about it, living in my house of changing faces. I still have the time. I think he's actually wrong about that, because I think one of the first four releases, as I recall it, was the mighty Jojo Gunn. Which Bloody was Asylum hell. sort of token like rock, rock band. act. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I don't Joni was not one of the first four releases. She definitely wasn't. Well, I mean, you know, yes, Jackson. Fine. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. I mean, he talks later on in an interview about his loyalty to David Geffen. I don't know how much that loyalty was tested later in his sort of his career. Talks about going to England and playing gigs with the very early version of Roxy music, to, to, uh, playing sort of wow. you know, play, playing Hull, playing Hull with Hull. Roxy music. <laughs> 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 Hull, David Blue, which is, Roxy music. music. I mean, one that's worth yeah. pointing out is he's one of the guys who started New York and went west. John Sebastian being the sort of the pioneer of that, wasn't he? He was one of the first of the, the, the New York Greenwich Village guys to go to Los Angeles and start working out of there. Um, Stephen Stills, I think, was another one. Yeah, all the folkies. Some of them did, and in the process sort of stopped being folkies, became mm-hmm. sort of singer-songwriters for labels like As- Asylum and so on. So he talked about getting this band together, including his guitar player, a certain Don Felder, who was to go on to well, join the Eagles. Yeah. Um, God, he was, the, he pro- was the nearly man, wasn't yeah. he? he? I well, mean, there's so many points that that could have gone worked. Yeah, for him. I know. It's Very a, nearly man. I mean, and he is really most famous for writing Outlaw Man, which is on Desperado, right? You know, and and I guess that probably made him a bit of money. It certainly would. But <laughs> did, have you ever listened to David Blue? Does the name mean anything to you? The, the name means what you've described. You know that era. Yeah, and yes. I knew he had a record on Electra. But I didn't know anything else really about him. Yeah, I mean, no. I mean he's sort of passed me by, and I know a fair amount about that stuff. And he's this this missing piece. And in, in I don't in think the music stuff. stands up terribly no. well. No, no that's, that's probably the one he, he well, did feature on the cover uh, of the official release of the Basement tapes. So obviously, was kind of still in Dylan's Good. circle. Oh, I forgot. And he, and he and he went on that tour, the Dylan's tour, the with he did. Oh, yes, he's he's on, the Rolling he's Thunder. Tour. Yeah, he's yeah, on a yeah. short leg I think of that. he was an important figure. I mean, I remember interviewing Elliot Roberts, and he said David Blue was very important to sort of Geffen Roberts and Asylum Records because mm. he had this status mm-hmm. from the within village. the. He had the Community. he was a continuum from like the folk era into this yeah, new yeah. Yeah. West Coast singer songwriter yeah. era. I mean, that was the best sense I could make sure. of it because when you listen to you compare David's records to say Judy Sills masterpieces, you know, or, or, or early Jackson Brown. I mean, they're just they're just kind of characterless compared yeah. to, to those. Well, one really the last thing on this, which is absolutely marvelous, is. They talk about David Bowie and John Tobler's sort of slightly sneering, oh, it's just glam, you know. David Blue says, no, he's going to find something else to be next time round. You know, he predicts David Bowie's reinvention of himself. Because I think he got how smart and interesting David Bowie was, you know. Well, Tobler's reaction is what a it's, lot of people's reaction was. It's just kind of glam rock. And, and no, Blue sort of spots that David Bowie will have a, other stuff. Yeah, there. well, so there were the, the interview that came out of the piece, I beg your pardon, that came out of that interview was published in Zigzag, I would say about four months after John interviewed right. Blue. And um, it's called Rambling On with David Blue. <laughs> Zigzag at that yeah. point was, was sort of 
you know, it was very, very West Coast. I mean, you probably read Zigzag. It was very, very, mm-hmm. like, smitten with oh. West Coast music. And, and anything vaguely glammy or, you know, pop glam was, was sort of slightly sneered yeah, at. Yeah, and it yeah. was only, after a while, it's like you couldn't really pretend that Bowie was just some yeah. sort of ephemeral glam phenomenon, you know. And, but, and, and then... Chris Needs comes along and they hand a magazine over to him and he kind of, it's punk. Overnight. And, 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 and Iggy's on the cover. Iggy's yeah. on the cover. Though it has, yeah. be, no, it has to be said, I, I read about Iggy in, at 72 in Zigzag or, you know, earlier than that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there was an element of Zigzag which actually wasn't just so sort of brown rice. Sorry. No, I think yeah. that's probably true. The thing is, the West Coast stuff was seen as grown-ups music. Yeah, you know, yeah. It was also old grey whistle test. It was Bob yes. Harris. Yeah. And glam was seen as kid stuff. Yeah, yes. it was pop, you know. So it's like this is okay, but it's not yeah. serious. It was a teenage rampage. Well, it was a teenage well, rampage, well, and it was. And, well, that's what's funny know. about all those kids' TV yeah. programs that and, uh, Bowling was on. Yeah, so that, that's kind of. Uh, and that's what I really love about David Blue saying that actually yeah, yeah. the, the, no, the bow is interesting and that he will do other stuff sort of stuff. Well, he'd already he... been something else beforehand. By the well, time Bowie got to glam, he'd that, been a sort of Roy Harper true. figure and yeah. a British Bob Dylan and all sorts. You know, he was he was yes, clearly he a mutating through. organism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, it's it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's it's actually a really interesting interview. Yeah. I think, you know. Just to bring it back to Dylan for a moment, I did love that bit about you know the encouragement that, that Dylan yeah. gave mm. to David Blue. It's interesting to hear about you know. Yeah. Here's a he certainly writer. didn't give it to Take these pills. <laughs> let's yeah. go to the woods. I mean, that that I was rather touching. Yeah. I thought. Yeah, I wonder if that's how it's done. Also, <laughs> did did Dylan carry a load of typewriters around with him? I mean, <laughs> yes, he yes. yes. don't look back, he's got one. You know, one I've I used think earlier. he wrote exactly. I I get the impression he actually wrote directly onto a typewriter. Do, 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 you, do you remember the hipster typewriter revival of about eight years ago when no. so you'd be in Dalston, there'd be someone sort of like in a cafe <laughs> in a coffee with, shop with a typewriter. That's yeah, it was that. a real That's thing. Brilliant. <laughs> you you said somewhere that, you know, basically songwriting began for you with Visions of Johanna, which you, you've already mentioned in this, in oh, yeah. this episode. Yeah. And I mean, just just talk briefly about about your. I mean, M- Martin is knows a hell of a lot more about Bob Dylan than, than, than any I of us do. do. It's so, funny. I so. went to see Cat Power do the whole '66 tour at the Royal Albert Hall. It was brilliant. To, just did the, the set, and yeah, they sounded. Yeah. I mean, it was incredible to hear. You know, start the second half. Thing, Robin? But did Robin you? had done this I about yes, twenty years this. previously. I did, yes. I did it in 1996, but just at the borderline. Right, and I did the acoustic set. And then I did the electric set with a band called Homer backing me up, who had a fantastic lead guitarist called Andrew Claridge, okay. who had the aggressive. He had the same aggression. He sounded just like Robertson did. So I just got those sort of wow. metal, those phrases yeah. coming mm. out. Yeah, yeah. And no, I did do it. That that is actually, or a lot of that is on that Dylan one you mentioned of mine, Robin sings. Yes. But we only ever put that mail order. It was never released or reviewed. Right. Or, but it, it, I think one side of it is is just that um, me doing the '66, huh? the electric '66. Right. Yeah, so there's and an course, electric yeah. visions of Joanna, and a, sorry, an acoustic one. There is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, I I don't know if I've ever actually nailed a definitive visions of Johanna. So I sometimes leave the third verse out, but I. <laughs> but to me, you know, like there are, you, a lot of verses. There are you know, but you you might. You know, it depends where you come in. I mean, I came in hearing folk songs and the Beatles and things, but what actually made me say this is what I want to do was was 
deep saturation in visions of Johanna sure, on a daily right, basis. Yeah. And so my idea of how a song, what a good song is, is based on that rather than I was born under a wandering star or Hey Jude or, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, Panic in Detroit or yeah. whatever, which might be equally good songs. But that was my, the portal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes. the idea of a song that it's got some, profound lyrics it's got some really inane lyrics it's got some unfathomable ones and it's both really funny and terribly sad at the same time it's good the emotions are just going in opposite mm-hmm. directions mm-hmm. And if you can that's what i constantly aim for and miss but you know i just think <laughs> well okay it Keep gives trying. me something to aim yeah, for yeah, you know, yeah. but that's it yeah and these visions of johanna that conquer my mind I went back and listened to your song Winchester which, which oh, is yeah. a, bra- a brave admission of where you went to school and song form not many would have done that but it's what a beautiful song it is and I just wanted to read out just well, a few it. lines from it oh yeah. well actually actually that is set in Winchester after I'd left the college bizarrely yes, my it's parents not so much about the my school. parents moved there right while I was at school mm-hmm. and then and then I was a sort of young raver there in like 70 72 73 mm-hmm. you know going around in my star and stripe flares and my shoulder length hair and my two quid deals and my <laughs> Kind of utter aimlessness. And, um, <laughs> Above uh, all, you know. The utter well, I was just with a bunch of people who were all aimless, and and the, but they were like a year or two younger than me, and they were happy to get stoned. And I realised that I was still doing it, but I was it was taking me absolutely nowhere. <laughs> and then I sort of made a few lurches, yeah, yeah. moved over to Guinness, and the rest is history. <laughs> Our old producer Jamie Lane was a Wickhamist. Yes, my father was a Wickhamist. Yeah. Mark Ellen was a Wickhamist. We should do a whole episode. You need to do. <laughs> I did just Winchester. Winchester on popular <laughs> I did. Music. I, well, Neil, because Winchester produces what they call Eminence Gris, who yeah. are very influential and nobody's ever heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike Old Etonians. Yeah, Old Etonians have got the spiel. They've also got uh, yeah. the common touch. They're very good. Winchester. Well, I know when Old Etonians have fucked the world, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we well, yeah. I did want just to so, read these few yeah. lines. When did from you write this song? This. Well, this eighty six, okay. yeah, it's a gorgeous. And it just these lines really touch me. I remember more than I can tell from Winchester. Maybe there's no one there at all. Maybe there's no one left who cared. Maybe there's no one there but Paul, living in Shawford after all these years, standing in the Talbot in my flares. I just thought it was really. Mm, it's, is, a, it's a it's a really beautiful. I mean, I, I just just wanted to oh, acknowledge. Thank you. Thank you. You know what a what a fantastic kind of uh, and uh, as well as obviously very surreal in many many areas, lyricist you 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 are. I and I know that you've published, or there is a book of of your lyrics that you've brought in. There's a book of my lyrics aptly titled oh it's somewhere apart it lyrics 77 to 97 yeah. and i've actually just finished a memoir of 1967 oh. for which i'm looking for an agent and because i've reached that magic age you know we're all going over the waterfall i just kind of want to <laughs> i want to put it down whether it's published or not yeah which is my 
a count of 67, which was, you know, in this weird elite sort of hothouse academic boarding school while this in southern England, while the psychedelic revolution raged all around us. <laughs> Inevitably, a lot of it's about 66 because there's the pre-production, you know. Yeah. And, and that's when I got to the college. But that was where, again, that that set me up for becoming what I am today, you know. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's how, why I wound up in Nashville and why I do all these funny little gigs and stuff like that, you sure. know. But it's all because of... The, that crucible and i just also it would probably explain quite a lot of why i am to be what i am you know and even if it's not published it kind of exists now so i'm rather I'm breathing oh, a bit of a sigh of mm. i mean you're a fantastic writer i mean i've read oh, pieces you. you've written there was a wonderful piece you wrote for the quietus i think about soft boys and it was oh. it was just oh fantastic. and your piece on on seeing dylan at the Isle of Wight Festival at age oh. 15 is really good. Did I? Are those things that appear on Facebook? No, that appeared. Uh, <laughs> Emma gets me Somewhere to put else. stuff up. Um, yeah. I can't remember where that appeared, but oh, it's okay. a really... Oh, um, flagging down the double E's, the Dylan newsletter kind oh. of website. Oh, I thought... Which is very good. Oh, Ray Padgett. Okay, I didn't uh, know I'd done that. Yeah, it's really yeah, good. You'll be really sending the invoice. In a <laughs> <laughs> I, I write... I, I've done so much writing about... Yeah. You know the right the line between rock artist and rock journalist is very thin. Each side's mm. always wanted to be the other, and there's great suspicion. You know, <laughs> generally yes. speaking, rock writers are a bit smarter than rock musicians, and they wish they were a bit dumber so they could be, you know, <laughs> the, the noble savage. <laughs> but actually, whereas I, you know, but there are, you know, Chrissy Hind was a rock writer, Bob yeah. Geldof was a rock writer, yeah, yeah. Neil Tennant famously. Yeah. Well, I think American rock writers particularly embraced you because they felt some a real kindred. kinship with you. I mean, there's this great, so Bill Holdship at oh, Cream yeah, yeah. and Jay Kordosh. So there's this wonderful Jay Kordosh. Oh, yeah, piece, he's gone. Just, which yeah. is this kind of like a rock critic's love letter to, to I think Bill titled his piece God Walks Among Us that was the reverence in which you were held yes that didn't go to my head at all <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah um, but it's, they did they did absolutely they, something really responded. resonated there and I, and I and I guess like Peter Buck and Mike Mills would probably have said the same thing and and then of course even Gillian Welsh and, and, and David Rawlings who you wouldn't naturally think would correspond but you did an album with them in Nashville oh, and a second Mr. Mo- Cycles about to wreck <laughs> our favourite Harley Davidson ah. motorcycle. Well, Gil and Dave actually lived down the road from us in Nashville, so the only person I would see walking around would be her. She's the only pedestrian, <laughs> only other the pedestrian in East Nashville. Nashville. <laughs> everyone else, everyone else drives <laughs> everywhere, but yeah, I, yeah. I would see this character wandering around, and it would be her. Um, and it was been really nice being with neighbours. We, you know, we go go around for a hoot or they drop in and what a lovely people and yeah. we've um, they are working on this I think it's safe to say this they're working on an exquisite record which I hope they finish during their lifetimes or during the lifetime of the world mm-hmm. but every so often we go around and they'll play a couple of more songs and it's it's just so yeah it's so absolutely beautiful it's just mm. These two acoustics with the voices, oh. sometimes mm. harmony, sometimes yeah. together. Yeah. 
I don't know who writes what, which it doesn't bit, matter. And I don't know yeah, really. we've, all, we've all absolutely I, I mean, loved you know, them I, for I, ages. I saw, I think it was the first time I ever played in London was at a record company showcase at Soho House or something like that. Yeah, like you a, told a, me. So, so yeah, and I had no idea who these people no. were. And I walked in and I just staggered out. It's just spelled You know, like me. 45 minutes later, yeah. absolutely stunned by what I had heard, you yeah. know. I mean, occasionally I find them too brutally dark in that sort of Appalachian, Appalachian sort of way, way you know yeah. I find that sometimes quite hard mm-hmm. but I think they're sensational have they written a song about the opioid crisis yet I don't know oh. they, you could imagine them doing a song called My Morphine from yeah, of course ago. My Morphine on the second um, album yeah. I mean that songs aren't I mean they're about they're about things but they also could be about anything they're, mm. they're also Dylan Students, you know, when we got together, we actually just spent three hours talking about Dylan and then right. went and recorded a bunch of covers on a right. cassette machine or so. You know, mm-hmm. somewhere there's a bus doing about half the basement tapes, <laughs> but um, they did a fantastic version of um, Radiohead's Black Star, Star? Black Star. yeah, absolutely beautiful. What's that on, Mark? It was just a boot. I think it was just a live recording from the. Oh, yeah, they've done Pixie songs and. Yeah. The uh, first time I saw them live, they did a version of Manic Depression. <laughs> and um, that was quite something. That was at the, I think that was at the Shepherd's Bush Empire. Right. But I kind of. I realised about halfway through the show that they were actually 80s indie kids in Appalachian yeah, drag. of course. And then it turned out that they knew my stuff and that they'd come to my shows and apparently I'd even signed Dave's guitar at one point. <laughs> and all kind of, oh, God, it's you, you know. <laughs> but they, that is their... Um, I don't know, they're just, they just produce this stuff that is yeah. so exquisitely yeah. raw and if it takes them another five years to finish it then you know I know it's I know they're getting it on tape good but their their studio was damaged by the tornado oh, East yes. Nashville we were hit by a tornado just before the pandemic wow about two weeks beforehand oh my god yeah. just um, to make it even worse yeah so yes. yeah we were I was wandering around the sort of the wreckage of we our house was missed by 200 yards wow. our, our cat roadie was sitting in the closet with Ringo and Tubby, our cats, I got this text. Grant Lee Phillips texted me and I was in San Francisco and he oh, said, okay. Tornado heading for Nashville. And I said, well, it's, I, I'm in San Francisco, but whoops, you know, <laughs> Ringo, Tubby and Gene. Anyway, oh they God. were okay. Everyone was okay. Gil and Dave were okay, but their studio incurred a lot of damage. Enough. So they yeah. spent days, no about 18 months fixing it. Right. Um, now they're, they're back and running. I think That's it's safe to say. I'd like just to talk briefly about the great, the late great Mick Farron, who died ten years ago. Yeah, and whose stuff has been on Rock's Back Pages. As he was saying earlier, for many years, musician turned writer turned musician. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. and uh, so we thought we would just mark that anniversary. I'm sitting here with his autobiography, "Give the Anarchist a Cigarette," in front of me, and also his collection that came out in the year of his death. Elvis died for somebody's sins, but not mine, which is collect collects lots of his great pieces. Right. So we are featuring three pieces by Mick to. 
you know, to kind of make clear what he was about, which was an anarchist with a cigarette. He was a rabble rouser. He was, you know, he was he was a, a Ladbroke Grove yeah, 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 yeah. revolutionary, yeah, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Um, who ended up writing for the NME, but yeah. started obviously on like IT. On yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I mean, I, one of my key rock and roll experiences at the age of 13 was going to see Soft Machine in the Hyde Park and the Deviants with the support oh, band. Oh, really? Right. And, um, <laughs> What I, was that I, like? I, I, it was astonishing. Well, you know, I was, I, I was thirteen, and they were great. You know, they they were. It was, it was really it was rock and roll. You know, fantastic. But I'd been reading. My brother had been buying International Times since '67, I guess, and, and so I'd seen his byline a lot. And then I was a melody maker. Went away after I got busted for some weed. Got sent to boarding school. Came back in. 73 and started reading the enemy for the first time and there was his byline in the enemy it's like ah oh, that's what's happened to him you know uh he's terrific i just yeah. it just uh, the, the the biography is really really worth reading the, the autobiography yeah yeah i mean he's a wonderful right i mean I just read so the first piece is from 67 june 67 pop in the police state from international times i'll just read the first paragraph just to give a flavor there was a time long ago when pop stars were nice albeit thick young men who were safe kept in check by their managers the worst things they were ever accused of were a certain preoccupation with death slash sex slash movements of their hips and possible homosexual relations with the aforesaid managers <laughs> <laughs> but there followed the less acceptable brigade the long-haired ones the ex-art students the university dropouts the beatniks trying to make it rich it suddenly became a crime to go dancing to pop groups, the penalty being searched in this... Oh, well, he, he talks a lot about the fuzz, the cops, yes. and his, these are his top tips about not getting busted. A, turn on before you go. You can't get busted in a club if you're not holding. Only don't get too stoned to notice a plant. B, <laughs> B make smokings work. The cops are unable to bust 2,000 people. Make sure, however, that the joints are not at the extreme edge of the crowd. <laughs> C, hide your address book as well as your stash. D, be creative in concealing narcotics. Only don't get too proud of your ingenuity and tell everyone. E, if a cop touches you, remove your clothes to facilitate a search. F, get high by other means. And G, finally, spray aniseed on police dogs. So those are mix, mixed <laughs> tips. <laughs> I mean, Preload. Nick's role was as, as a sort of resident hard nut of the hippie generation. You know, mm, the, like, yes. um, people like Joe Boyd talk about seeing him as a doorman at UFO. And he, yes. he, he was a burly oh. bloke. You well, know, he, he, he wasn't middle class. He wasn't. And so he had a, he had a real kind of bee in his bonnet about middle class revolution. Yeah, yeah. But, so he, but his... he was kind of like, he, he was the... the International Times editorial minder. Right. Yeah. Was, yeah. was he the singer in the Deviants? He was. Yes. So he yeah. was the front man. Singer, singer yeah. probably yeah. in quote. Marks. I, I yeah. later, I later yeah. saw him actually. Um, well, Pink Ferris played under the Westway once and uh, he came and joined them. The Pink Ferris were basically the Deviants, sort of renamed. Yeah. Uh, and he came up yeah. and they did a sort of Deviants. Yeah, they did a sort of Deviants retro spot. And he wrote the great. Titanic piece. Well, so he? that's so the, the the third of his pieces, which I kind of always featured. remember as being written by Nick Kent. But, it, but no, it was no. it was indeed yeah. um, just revisiting Mick's story. I was surprised to find he only uh, started writing for the Enemy in seventy four, and I sort of think surely it was before that. But anyway, so two years after starting to write for the Enemy, he writes this epic piece, very influential piece, the Titanic sails at dawn, which basically sort of says, you know. 
we're heading for this iceberg unless rock and roll kind of reinvents itself mm-hmm. and it stops being, I mean, it's like now it's about, mm. it's sort of safe and, and it's, it's embraced by royalty. And it's And it's, yeah. I thought it was more influential than it actually really was. Cause when you look at the date of it, punk bands were already getting They're together. They're already happening. They're yeah. already happening. And he really? doesn't reference no. those. It's June 76, and he doesn't actually mention no. the Pistols, probably just because he's too too old to really be tuned into that. Do you remember that? Do you, would you have read that piece, do you think? No, I'm surprised I didn't, because I was, I was quite an NME student yeah, at yeah. that point. I mean, there were certain, particularly the Nick Kent, Sid Barrett piece, I think right. I actually set that to music at one point. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember um, that too. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and there was a lot, and that was very well written. And yeah. I remember Mick Farron's review of Desire, which would have been in early 76, and he didn't like it. And then then a few people wrote in, you know, Storm of Protest. And he just said, oh, sorry, I love the damn thing now. You know, like he just flipped <laughs> yes. over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was like, okay, I, I did do this two-page review, but now, you know, yeah, but I never saw him. But I, but I do remember, you know, and I, that whole thing of the deviance seemed like it was something exciting that I never yeah. quite saw. And then yeah. he appeared. I think he was playing things like Dingwalls and stuff. Yeah, well, he died on. Where did he die on stage? Was, was, it, Dingwalls? was it Dingwalls or was it the Borderline? Maybe I mean, Borderline. I borderline. Yes, yeah, so I think you're right. Really? Yeah, he actually died he on stage. Died yeah. on stage cause Heart it, attack on. Yeah. Was he performing? Yeah. Yeah, he was. Oh wow! Yeah, what, was he? Was. he was that like a Deviance revival? I, no, I don't know. I don't know what he was playing at that point. What it was, whether it was the Deviance or whether we it was went to, We went to the book launch for that and he did a little set with Reckless Eric and uh, Larry Wallace, I think. Yeah. Larry Wallace? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we met him in LA and the third, the, 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 when we were actually recruiting yeah. people. Yes. So um, to I met him a couple of times in LA. And the, so the fourth of the pieces that, that are going to appear in the Feature Brides panel is a really nice piece that, that our friend Paul Gorman, author of Totally Wired, wrote about himself going to West Hollywood and interviewing Mick for what was then in their own right, so about International Times and about the oh, enemy. Yeah. And um, it's just a really nice tribute. And Mick told them the big battle at the enemy was, did we put out a kind of high school magazine about everything which might be interesting to a bunch of people pulled together by their liking for music? Or did we just put out a music magazine? And I think one of Mick's briefs that he set himself was to try and get non-music related yes. stuff in, into, into the, the paper yeah. and, and that it was an important uh, it, 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 it changed the NME yeah. and the NME from, certainly for a great stretch from there till I'd say the end of the 80s yeah. carried on in exactly that way you had, I think it did. You had politics you well, had I mean I discovered stuff. Philip K. Dick through yeah, yeah, Charlie Murray yeah. writing <laughs> about Philip K. Dick and I became obsessed with thanks to thanks to Charlie mm-hmm. became obsessed with Philip K. Dick yeah. didn't Mick Farron invent Charles Shaw Murray <laughs> <laughs> that's quite a good case for that yeah, yeah, yeah. they, yeah. Like they could almost have been sort of brothers couldn't they I Mick feel like he, he, well, he was he was definitely there before he was oh yes no, that was, I mean, with, Charlie you know, Murray's first written piece was, was for Oz. School Kids Oz School Kids where he oh, wrote about okay. Making love to Led Zeppelin, I believe, was, was the, the actual piece. Um, Not something you'd ever have written, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Two or in the presence of, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big one. Yours have been more of like, making out to Piper at, at the gates. Oh, door. TMO, totally making out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I never, I never mixed 
music and the erotic because they just went erotic arts. They just went in different directions. <laughs> I, 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 I can't. All, all the better for uh, them. you know. I just <laughs> focus on one thing at a time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I mean the thing with Mick Farron is that he and I suppose Charles Shaw Murray as well, but Mick Farron particularly because he was there in '67 was that he was like deep hippie and then deep punk. Yeah. And yeah. so it was it was really interesting for for people of my era to see how much of the hippie London underground reappeared in NME 10 years later. Sure, sure. And like you said the thing of having interviews with articles that weren't just about music. Yeah, yeah. There was a big interview with Michael Heseltine. Yeah. You know, and, and like 82 or 83. Yeah. Pat Nevin. When he was like, you know, he was a, almost an antichrist. Yeah. Someone decided they should actually see what he thought. Yeah. And um, I thought that was really yeah. good, you know, yeah. because the un- because the underground started with this great sense of potential mm-hmm. and then inevitably, you know, the the momentum dissipated. Yes. And, and Mick he, wrote you know, a lot about you know, that. that. Yeah. Precisely that. But as you say, he, in a sense, he, he and people like he and Charlie Murray reintroduced that, reintroduced international times into the NME. Yeah. In, in many, in many ways. Open, in, in terms yeah. of its broad yeah. Yeah. Bre- breadth of, of interest. Uh, was Nick so Kent from that lot? Or? He, uh, yeah, his friends. He, he wrote for friends. Oh, yes. Mm. Well, okay, right. Yes. Um, is that in a box somewhere in Nashville? <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. No, I haven't. I never got any friends. You never got I've friends. Got, okay. I've got the magazine. I've got Barry Miles's "These We Have Loved." You know, old mm-hmm. like all the magazine covers from the you know the ones I got and the ones I missed, and it's all yeah. Oh, you know, it's just when you start seeing your life in a museum, uh, you know, <laughs> have you lived too long or is life just moving too fast? <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Um, well, so that's that, that's Mick Farron, and um, yeah, we miss him. And uh, at this point, Mark is going to mention a few of um, the pieces that he has added. Yes, it, it, mostly recent, but in fact, one of the first pieces I want to talk about actually went in a couple of two or three weeks ago. Richard Harrington writing about the slam dancing hardcore scene in, in, in Washington, D.C. And it's really interesting because he's actually at a sort of ground zero of certain things. He says, it's a kind of dance, it's just letting go, just going off, says Henry Garfield. <laughs> it's high energy, and you're out there flailing away, smashing into stuff. You're not hurting anybody, you're just out to get it out and move. Be out there <laughs> with your friends and hear that loud music. You're up there to do it. And s- sometimes have it done unto you. Garfield, 20, was until recently the lead singer of SOA, State of Alert, one of the area's main musclehead bands. Last week became the new vocalist for Black Flag, the notorious hardcore punk band from Los Angeles, where the movement originated. Garfield, whose taut body is covered with scratches, bruises and lumps, says, I don't consider this dangerous. If it was, I wouldn't care anyhow. I don't think about it. A lot of the stuff I do, I don't remember because I get so carried away with the music. I've got scars all over my face. Most of them are given me by my friends. So what? That's Henry Rollins. Mm. He's just joined Black Flag. So (laughs) this is a real sort of like... And they also talked to a minor threat. Who are, um, yeah. uh, and he mentions one of minor threat songs called Straight Edge, which became a name for, for that a, movement. Oh. And it's specifically Washington, D.C. And he talks yeah. in the article about how the L.A. bands, there's a lot of drugs, 
Derby Crash, the Germs, and so yeah. on and so forth. But the, the DC bands were much straighter. There was, there was yeah, Ian McKay, who was the, yeah, the, right. the front man of Minor Mon- Threat, was yeah. the sort of leader of that and, and brought in this idea of not getting, not, not doing taking drugs. drugs yeah. 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 yeah, and leading this quite sort of so, puritanical, so, puritanical life. life yes. uh, so this piece is absolute gold dust. Brilliant. You know, that he yeah. just happens to. Be, and it's very sympathetic. I mean, Harrington's the main music writer for the Washington Post, one of the main music mm, writers for yeah. the Washington Post. But he's very, very sympathetic to the scene, even though it's obviously not musically what he particularly likes, you know. Yeah. It's terrific. It's an absolutely it's fantastic piece of writing. Up Going back to a, a week ago, our recent acquisition, Tom Vickers, interviewing Marvin Gaye. The lovely, Gaye, the wonderful Tom Vickers. Uh, we had, yes, we had him podcast some way back. Phonograph record, 1977, interviewing Marvin Gaye. And Marvin Gaye says, Man is pretty weak to bow to some of the demands of the more radical women today. I'm not chauvinistic, to tell the truth. It may hurt to recognise it, but I'm the king and I love you, and you're the queen. The queen cannot be king. The queen must be the queen, and the king the king. I probably just lost a couple of million record sales. <laughs> that is fantastic. Well, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, just to mention, I mean, you know, Tom Vickers, wonderful addition to the Rocks Back Pages yes. family. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wrote so many incredible pieces, did interviews with, with everyone from Marvin to well, Teddy. What, what was his job? He was the, the Minister of Information for Parliament Funkadelic. Yeah, this, this, this guy oh. was, was brought into the press and, and, and George Clinton basically gave him this fabulous title that was like on his business card. So <laughs> the Minister of Information for P-Funk. And he's such a delightful man. I mean, he is. Uh, you can understand why yeah. George gave him this job. Oh. Um, I just mentioned that we've got Joe McKeon's review of Eddie Hinton's Very Extremely Dangerous from Village Voice on 3rd of July 1978. Ooh, one of my favourite yeah. Which is probably the only mention that record ever got anywhere. You know, <laughs> well, I wonder where, where else it might have been. Do you know that record, Robin? No, who's that guy? Eddie Hinton. Eddie he was a Hinton. kind of white soul guy. White soul guy. He, oh, you know, yeah. he kind of wrote with Donny Fritz and was part of the Muscle Shoals setup. Yeah, but just unlucky, really. I mean, also well, bit, also acid damage. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, totally acid, acid damage. damage. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, another one of those. Another one of those. But I mean, one of that record is a kind of extraordinary of like white guys with like quote unquote black voices. I mean, he is. I had that album for a period, and I didn't know because there was a black guy on the cover. Oh, I just assumed. It's so. I just never saw pictures of it. That story about. Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, like Nils Lofgren brings it in and puts it on. Yes. And no one can believe no. that he's white. He sounds so much like Bobby Womack at times. Yeah. yeah. Cr- very, oh. yeah. very, very Bobby A little bit friends. with Otis and a little bit with Joe Tang. I just, I moment. hear Bobby. Like, I, 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 Womack Bobby was, was, was yeah. like, yeah, anyway. But my, my experience was interviewing Dan Penn in Nashville and asking him whether Eddie was still around and, and the conversation sort of meandered on and I obviously said something which betrayed the fact that I thought that Eddie was black and Linda, Dan's wife, went, why, Eddie is white. Did you not know that? <laughs> <laughs> and and, and so, Mia and I, Mia who's taking the photographs, we just looked at each other like, oh, sorry, are we talking about the same, same. Eddie Henson? Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah.
Great guitar player too. Incredible great, guitar great, player. Great Plays player. guitar on Elvis Presley's Merry Christmas Baby. <laughs> is, he, is he still alive? No, no. He no, he, he he ended up with a fairly sort of serious alcohol yeah. problem. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, People he would have probably voted for Donald Trump too. Oh, God, <laughs> no, let's not have that conversation. Uh, anyway, uh, moving yes, on to uh, a couple of years later, another of these Washington, uh, thanks to Richard Harrington, who wrote the piece about hardcore, mm. we got hold of Joe Sasfi as well, who, who, like Richard, wrote for Unicorn Times, which was an underground paper in D.C. in, in the 70s. And this is him interviewed with... It's a marvellous piece on the cramps. It's really, really fabulous. Ivy Rorschach says, I didn't want to play it, Brown didn't want to play it, and Lux didn't want to play anything. So, no bass. <laughs> <laughs> and then talking about Brian, he looked like a definite mistake in the human race. Brian used to work on an assembly line. He fell in one day and no one noticed for three hours. He came out a car. <laughs> listen, did you know this piece is so Joe Sussman is actually in Memphis when they're recording yeah, with that, Alex Chilton that's right he's in the studio which is amazing so the there's st- like kind of reportage on, on Alex yeah. trying to produce yeah and it's obviously chaotic uh, songs, songs <laughs> that's right he's, he's, he's saying nothing apparently Alex just sits, sits there sort of silent you know yeah, um, this week Twinkle who of course is a sister of one of <laughs> Twinkle tw- one of our, like sister of one of our writers Dawn yes. James yes uh, interviewed by Maureen Cleave in the Evening Stand in 1964. Twinkle's real name is Lynn Ripley. She loathes this name and says she has been Twinkle almost from birth. Her father is Sidney William Leonard Ripley, chairman of this and that, Twinkle says vaguely. One of her godfathers is John Boyd Carpenter, and one of her heroes is Sarlat Douglas Hume. I don't worship him politically, she said, but because he's so with it. <laughs> oh. I feel did, really... you, did you not know that Sir Alex... Sir Alex Douglas, Douglas Hume was with it. And until this moment, <laughs> I don't think you would have known I, that, Robin. I didn't, I didn't even know it was with Sir Alec Douglas Hume. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she says, oh, and I feel really sorry for my parents, the poor things. It's pathetic how they've had to change in the last two years. They've had to become fantastically with it, especially Mummy. Now they're just especially mad mommy. about pop music and they can't stand the sort of stuff they play at the Savoy Hotel. Fantastic. So it's just cultural. Prices. I mean, this is you know, so, this yeah, is not just music journalism. No. This is yeah. cross no, 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 cultural no, 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 studies. This, this yes. is really good. We've also got a great interview. Well, it's a kind of discography slash interview with Miles Davis from Gene Santoro of Pulse Magazine in 1988. Oh, Laurie Anderson to Mick Sinclair sounds 1982. I don't hold with the usual art thing of being anti-entertainment. That entertainment is a cover for banality. I take the view that seriousness is a cover for banality, which is actually. Com- Quite a good point. Rory <laughs> yeah. yeah. was um, great. And briefly, lastly, Chet Atkins, again written by Richard Harrington for Washington Post in 1980, about the state of country music in 1980, says, I'm to blame for a lot of that myself. Country music moved uptown and it doesn't exist much anymore in the old form. And I don't know if it ever will. You know, no. he's basically putting hold his hands up and saying, saying uh, country politicians was my... Well, he was a very... Yeah, but, you know, things always come back again. And then, yeah. you know... But then he you get... I suppose it's a good point. Once it was once it was really marketed things, it meant all the things like the Leuven brothers or Hank Williams well, and stuff. Yeah, 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 because that side. Yeah, I mean, it, it just became poppy. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, I love some. I mean, we were all Patsy Cline fans. Of course, and around this table, and that's pure country politics in many respects. Did you miss an opportunity to make a country politics record while you were in Nashville? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't to. necessarily missed it, actually. I dare say that still could happen <laughs> quite easily. I've, I know exactly the people I would yep. use. Yeah. I just have to have a, a big enough collection of original songs of mine that would 
masquerade as a country album yeah, and get but, Argus Pig Robbins to play well, piano but, and you'd also oh, have to have Argus Pig Robbins was blind yes, yes. yes. hence pig blind as a pig blind. oh is that what it is <gasps> yeah that's where it comes from I know I met I met Charlie McCoy a couple of times right. Right. I met Wayne oh. Moss who's oh, Charlie McCoy's quite tough back. he'll probably be the last to go but I mean they're all over 80 now yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I would imagine I think Pig had already gone. Yeah, because um, Bob yeah. Ray, who played bass with us, played bass on a lot of George Jones records. Yes. And Pig was on those. Really? That's why I knew it. Uh, in fact, Pig. Robert Altman... <laughs> so he Robert plays Altman's... on Pledging My Time. Yes. Right. Fantastic Robert piano. Altman's yeah. Nashville has a blind piano player as one of the... Huh? As a kind of characters, oh, it's worth too. watching again. Nashville, you I know. haven't seen it the first time. Oh, but Jeff Goldblum's first, uh, yeah. first yeah. screen performance, I think. Does, does, a, does it what? stand up, Nashville? Probably it's not. I mean, a Altman bit hysterical. Is... It's a bit hysterical because it ends yeah. with an assassination. Assassination. Okay. The Athenian Temple in Nashville. Oh, is that I... still there? Oh, totally. It's. It's. I didn't even know it existed, and I suddenly found myself in it. It was very weird. Why would there be Why? this Athenian Greek temple? When you get to Nashville Airport, it says, Welcome to Nashville, the Athens of the South. <laughs> and I thought, well, there is well, Athens, Georgia. <laughs> there is an Athens. <laughs> I know, it's not I know. the only it's Athens. Really really confusing. Because when we went there, it was closed for some reason. Yes, Nashville. We Nashville yeah, it was. Was closed. Except our piano player, Robbie's Western and Afro-Caribbean, and his mum's pure Jamaican. He went into um, Twitty City, the record store, and came out with armfuls of Jim, Jim Reeves records for his mum. Because oh, reggae, uh, country is huge in, in Jamaica. Is it? It's yeah, really, really big. Jim, Powerful Jim transistors. Yeah. Uh, the so Caribbean could pick up the Nashville station. Yes, yeah, right. They could, hear, they, they could get it on the radio. Mm, so, I didn't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jim Reeves was revered in... Jamaica. It doesn't like... never made any sense to me, but you know, you kind of love what you can get, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. all I can hear, I th- you know. Yeah, yeah. Floyd well, Kramer's that piano. Arcane footnote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should probably wind up what's been a, a really, really enjoyable it's been great episode. Fun. Thank you so much for joining us, Robin. Yeah. Oh, Do you have any parting words you'd like to um, offer our listeners? Well, I haven't gone yet, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, you're here with both ears, and I love both of them equally. I have no favourites. Love on you, darlings, and thanks for having me, everybody. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> oh, wonderful. So go out and buy all of Robin's many, many albums. You contain multitudes of albums. And the Soft Boys, you know... Underwater Moonlight is a particular favourite of mine. When we get that remastered, yes. there'll be nothing to stop yes. us. Oh, yeah, don't <laughs> wait till that comes out. <laughs> next, stop the I, moon. I really hope, along with the next Gillian and David record, I think Underwater Moonlight, boy, it's going to be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and, just, and just a last brief plug for your, for your lyrics book. Which oh, is, yeah. It's on our Tiny Ghost publishing house, which means it's not in any shops at all. <laughs> That's the kind of marketing strategy we have. But you can order it from Tiny Ghost, and we've just about... Yeah, there's been a bit of a meltdown, but it's back in... We have some in stock in Britain and in the United States. And, and what's it called again, Robert? It's called Somewhere Apart. Somewhere Apart. It's a lovingly recreated... It's trying to look like a, like a 19... 
61 Faber poetry book, you know, like yeah. Ted Hughes yeah. and Sylvia. Well, Faber Blatt, is, yeah. are doing these sort of lyrics books, aren't they? They've done, they've done like Neil Tennant, get this oh, one, Turner of uh, Arctic Monkeys, Jarvis Cocker. You should have been in that series, but you've, you've I outwitted them. I would just outwit game. them by going, publishing it directly yes. ourselves. Yeah. You'll yeah. make more money um, <laughs> yeah, fewer outlets, but a greater percentage of the profits when there are some. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's no. a, that last clause in brackets. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, yes. Well, good luck. Good luck with that. Thanks, um, Barney. And, um, Thank you. Yeah, Thanks we will me. be back actually in a week with Richard Boone, former manager of Buzzcocks. Yeah. And Dwayne, Dwayne of the Match United. A lovely Match United. Man. The Match team. <laughs> you don't know who he no. supports. But he's lived probably, in Stoke Newington for City. about 40 years now. So he's hard. He yes. really even doesn't count as Mancunian. But we look forward but to it very much. wonderful man. So yeah. Anyway, let's all just say toodle pep and goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. That concludes episode 155 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Robin Hitchcock. Somewhere Apart, Selected Lyrics 1977 to 1997 is published by Tiny Ghost and available now. The host were Bonnie Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier and the producer was Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com And you can tell your friend there with you You'll have to